I don't know about you, but uh, one of the thoughts that I have during the Christmas season is uh, that uh, the holidays brings out the best and the worst of just about everybody. Uh, have any of you driven down 278 recently? I mean, you know, uh, been in a shopping center or mall or whatever. Uh, it really is true that uh, that's the case. That's just part of life. It's part of humanity. It's part of the busyness of the Christmas season. And I know that just a few weeks ago, I talked about and I focused on in one of my illustrations about the fact that sometimes we get so excited waiting for our family to arrive, and then we get so excited when they what? Leave. Okay, and I must have struck a chord because <laughs> I, I heard from some of you on that. Not all was good, by the way, on that one. But anyway, uh, I do love my parents, and I do love when family come. Just to be clear, clear up anything uh, that might have been perceived in that. It was just an illustration, okay? So anyway, I probably used a bit of hyperbole. But uh, in some sense, it's true that uh, the holidays just bring out the best, and they bring out the worst in people. It's just kind of the way that things go. And it's interesting when we talk about family, when we talk about family uh, people in our family, and even at the mention of some of their names, um, it brings out certain emotions, doesn't it? When you say the word grandma, or grandmother, or grandfather, or mom, or dad, for some of you, that brings up certain emotions, doesn't it? You know, uh, you might be particularly close to a loved one who may have passed away in years past around the Christmas season, and it brings back some uh, remembrance of who they are. And it brings back maybe some pain that they're gone. For some of you, you may have a, a very strong relationship for, with one of those people that I just mentioned, one of those family members I just mentioned, and it brings about good memories. It brings about good things. For some of you, it may be a strained relationship, and it brings about all the emotions that go along with that. But they are all people who are part of our lives. And whether it's good or bad or ugly, they've had an impact on our lives, haven't they? They've had some sort of influence in our lives. There's a man who's had one of probably the greatest influences on my life of, of any men in my life. And uh, he's my grandfather, whose name is William W. Boyd. He's affectionately known in our family as Pop. And uh, my, my dad, when we had kids, Sydney was the firstborn child in our family. And when we had Sydney seven years ago, uh, he took on the name Pop Pop. And so we have Pop Pop, who's my dad. And then we have Pop, who is my mom's father. And his name is William W. Boyd. Well, He's my only living grandparent. He was born into a poor family. He was adopted, and he came to know Christ at a, at a young age. He uh, met my grandmother in college, and uh, shortly after college, they got married. And it was he and my grandmother who were the spiritual beginnings of our family. He and my grandmother were kind of the spiritual parents of our family. My, my grandmother came to know Christ. My grandfather Nate came to know Christ. And they had the largest influence for Christ in our family. I mean, I'm a Christian today. I'm standing here today because of Pop and because of my grandmother Kay. Well, in 2007, my grandmother went on to be with the Lord uh, shortly after we moved here. They're, they're from Florida. They live in Florida. Well, in 1921... On December the 18th, today, in 1921, my pop was born. If you do math quickly, that makes him how old? Wow, man, y'all are asleep or you're poor mathematicians. Okay, that makes, thanks, someone said it, 90 years old. It makes him 90 years old today. Wow, that kind of shocked me. Y'all are just like me. Anyway, okay, uh, that makes him 90 years old today. Uh, one of the men who's had the greatest influence on me. 
And I promise you, it's just a God thing that today we're talking about everlasting Father. And I thought that was just an amazing thing that God did that. And that uh, today is my grandfather's 90th birthday. And I hope and I pray that I'm the kind of man at 90 that he is. And he's in great condition. He, he was a godly man. He's, uh, he's strong. He was a kind of a go-getter, a self-made man. He was a church planter, a banker by trade. And uh, God used him in amazing ways in my life. And when I think of the word grandfather... That's the face that I associate grandfather with. And I would imagine that there are faces that you associate that word grandfather or grandmother or mother. And in some sense, in a large sense, in our family, when we think of father, we associate father, the name father, with my grandfather, Pop. He's kind of the patriarch of our family. Even my dad, who lost his father uh, quite a few years, 16 years ago, uh, kind of considers Pop his dad, too, in, a, in a, a huge sense, in a spiritual sense, and in many others. Well, we all think of different things when we think of that word father. And for some of you, that brings about a great emotion. And for others of you, it just doesn't. For some of you, when you hear that word uttered, when you hear the word father uttered, it brings about the idea of strength of character, of courage, of poise and grace. And for others of you, it conjures up different words like maybe unfaithful or unattentive or maybe perhaps even violent. You know, there are all kind of people out there. There are all kind of moms. There are all kind of dads. There are all kind of brothers and sisters, grandmothers, grandparents, aunts and uncles, all kinds. And even back in the ancient day when Isaiah wrote to the nation of Israel, and we're studying in this time, uh, this Christmas season in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, even when Isaiah wrote these words to the nation of Israel, there were all kind of fathers and mothers. You know, there were good dads and there were bad dads. There were fathers who were attentive and fathers who were interested, and then there were some who weren't. And so it has caused me in years past to wonder why a name that elicits so much emotion, that elicits so much, uh, so many different descriptions, whether good or bad, why did God lead the prophet Isaiah to use the word everlasting father to describe the promised one? Why would he use that word? Why in the world would Isaiah have gone from wonderful counselor to mighty God, and then say everlasting Father. Take a look at Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Father God, today as we continue to study this passage in four different parts, and as we continue to study who the promise was four to five hundred, maybe seven hundred years even before your birth. God, I pray that today you would lead us into a clear understanding of exactly what it means that you, Messiah, were the everlasting Father. God, I pray wherever we are on that spectrum of the word Father, wherever we are on what that brings up to our mind and our heart and our emotions. 
God, I pray that you would replace that with what you want us to hear today, and that's the truth of your word. And God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us into truth and into wisdom and into knowledge today. And God, I pray that you would pierce our hearts and that you would bring about change in our lives, change in our relationship with you, and change in how we treat others as a result of the fact that you are the everlasting Father. Guide us into truth and wisdom. And God, may we this Christmas season have a clearer understanding of who the promise was. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Isaiah is writing to the nation of Israel, and that's pretty important to understanding what everlasting father meant. You see, when Isaiah was writing, he was writing to a group of people that when he said the word father, it may have brought about some of the emotions that we just talked about, whether good or bad, but it would also have brought about something, something else. And that is immediately the mention of the word father would have brought about respect. You see, to understand this whole concept of everlasting father, we've got to understand that the title of father was of utmost importance in Jewish society. In Hebrew culture, it was of absolute utmost importance. It would have meant everything. And so Isaiah used a term that the nation of Israel was very familiar with. Now remember, Isaiah is writing, and the, the word prophet means uh, a watchkeeper, and he was keeping watch over the nation of Israel. And in this case, God was telling Isaiah to pen the words and write the words that there would be someone who would come and save humanity that the Messiah was going to come, and this is what the Messiah would be like. And Isaiah 9 is one of the many chapters that I, Isaiah uses to describe who the promise would become. And in this case, he uses the word father. I want you to capture this. Everything about Jewish life, everything about Hebrew life would have revolved around fathers. If you grew up in Sunday school, we grew up singing about this, didn't we? Father who? Abraham, that's right. You want to sing it? Father Abraham. Okay, we won't do that this morning. Okay. Everlasting father would have absolutely rung true with the people who this was originally intended to be received from, or received to. It would have absolutely, they would have understood that Isaiah was giving a name of respect, of honor. Father Abraham, the patriarch of everything, if you were someone who was an Israelite in that day and age. And so when we think of everlasting father, for some of us it might be difficult. For people who grew up in Jewish society, they would have understood it. It might have been difficult for some of them based on who their father was. may not have been easy for them to understand, but they would have automatically assigned respect to the title of father. Now, everlasting father is quite clearly, when you put those words together, the most difficult of these four descriptions to understand and even explain. The word itself, I want you to catch this, Father doesn't mean father in the sense that we understand it today. The word father that Isaiah was using there would have brought about the idea of fatherly qualities, fatherly characteristics. So Isaiah is saying that the baby Jesus, the one that was going to be born a child, which would have already shocked them, was going to be the wonderful counselor, and that would have shocked them, and he would be the mighty God, but he would also be the everlasting father. Now, do you see the irony in this already? Isaiah's mentioned that he's a child, that he's going to be born as a boy, and that he's calling him everlasting father. There's a lot of irony in there. But it's really ironic if you think about and understand a little bit the name and exactly what it means. 
The word father in this case means father, but it actually has the connotation and it means a little more specifically the beginning of or the father of. Like we would say that, you know, Thomas Edison is the father of invention. We would say that he's, you know, different people are the father of different things. Steve Jobs may be the father of the modern day computer or Bill Gates, that there are different people who are the father of something. Isaiah is saying that this baby that would come, the one that was going to be the Messiah, would be the father of what exactly? Well, let's take a look at the first word that he uses to describe that, and that's everlasting. Everlasting father. Loosely translated, everlasting means eternity. So if you put those two concepts together, what Isaiah is saying is he's saying that the Messiah, the promised one, the one that's going to come and save the world, save the eternity of the world, is the beginning of, catch this, the beginning of what? Eternity. He's the beginning or the origin of eternity. And so the word described may be not exactly what we think of it right off the bat. There may be more to it than that. Now, when we put the name together for Jesus, it's Aveyad in Hebrew, and it's quite different than the common Hebrew name that's everlasting God, El Olam. El Olam, or everlasting God, literally means that God himself is everlasting. Aveyad is a name for Jesus that means everlasting father, meaning the father of eternity. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference there that there's a difference between those very common things back in the Hebrew language? So we can understand that Jesus was promised to be the father of eternity. He was going to be the father of every everlasting. Now, what happened is, is that Jesus ushered in a whole new age. He ushered in what's called the new covenant. You see that Bible's broken down into two distinct parts, right? We have the Old Testament and we have the New Testament. And if you understand anything about the Bible, you understand that there are two different parts. Well, loosely understood, the two different parts break down into the Old Covenant on one side and the New Covenant on another. And we've talked about this before, but it's great to be reminded of this often and even during the Christmas season because Jesus ushered in the age of the New Covenant. Well, you may ask, Todd, What's new about the new covenant? Well, let me explain. The old covenant, in the old covenant, there was a father. We just talked about who the father was of the old covenant. What was his name? Abraham, Father Abraham. And Father Abraham was the father of the old covenant in essence. And Father Abraham, under the old covenant, there was a, a relationship between God and man in the old covenant that changed with the new covenant. In the old covenant, God was up here and man was down here. And what defined the old covenant was this thing called law. Law was the basis and the bottom line of the definition of the old covenant. Father Abraham, the old age, the old covenant, the old relationship between God and man. And man, to have a relationship with God, had to abide by the law. They had to meet every specific part of the law to have a perfect relationship with God. And, of course, man would break that. And when they would break it, they would have to go to a priest, they would have to reconcile through animal sacrifice, and the old covenant was established and defined by law. When Jesus came into the world, because he is the everlasting father, the father of eternity, what he did was he ushered in a whole new time, a new covenant, where all of a sudden, Father Abraham was no longer the father but Jesus was the father of eternity. 
And all of a sudden, a new relationship entered where if you had a, a, a broken relationship with God because of sin, because we can't be perfect with God, when there was a break in the relationship, a new series of things would transpire to renew that relationship. You see, under the old covenant, there was a method of repentance through a priest and a method of re reconciliation through animal sacrifice. Under the new covenant, the method of repentance is direct communication with God, and the method of reconciliation is forgiveness. And whereas the old covenant is defined by law and keeping that law, the new covenant is defined by, guess what? Grace. It's defined by grace. You see, when we say that Jesus is the everlasting father, the father of eternity, it doesn't necessarily mean what we think it means. It means that a new age was ushered in. And that those of us who have accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Savior no longer live here. We live here under the new covenant, full of grace and full of mercy and full of forgiveness and full of love. And so that leads us to our key principle this morning. Jesus, the Messiah, was promised to be the everlasting Father. He's the author of eternity, and he extended grace to us. And so we should likewise extend grace to those around us. But you say, Todd, what in the world does all of that mean and how can I apply it to my life tomorrow morning? Well, I want to tell you three things this morning, three ways that we can apply the fact that Jesus is the everlasting father to our life. And the first one is this. First, because Jesus is the everlasting father, we are not defined by our past mistakes or future failures. We are first not defined by our past mistakes or future failures. You know why? Because Jesus, the promised one, is the author of eternity. There's this uh, little website that was de developed a few years ago. Um, I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's called uh, Facebook. Any of you have heard about Facebook? Anyway, Facebook is out there, and um, it's the most utilized website in the world. One in 13 people in the world use Facebook. <laughs> okay, just think about that for a moment. One in 13 people in the world use Facebook, and I've actually heard that's an older stat, and it may be as, as, as many as one in eight now use Facebook. Isn't that amazing? Okay, 57% um, 50 of people talk more on Facebook than they do in person. Yeah, anyway, we've got problems, don't we? Anyway, that'll be a whole sermon series sometime. Don't worry, I'll come back to that one day. 48% of young Americans get their news from Facebook. Okay, great. All right, you guys are with me. Um, well, recently, the developers of Facebook started something new called Timeline. <laughs> okay, some of you have heard about Timeline, and if you're, are, if you're listen, I promise you, I, I've been off Facebook for a little while. It's been kind of refreshing, to be honest with you. Um, if you're a Facebook user, and I'm describing this incorrectly, um, don't be a nerd and come up and say something to me about it. Don't miss the forest for the trees. It's just an illustration, okay? But basically, what I understand Timeline to be, and I haven't done this yet, is that in Timeline on Facebook, everything that you've ever done on Facebook is permanently posted in this nice creative collage type thing, okay, which is really great in theory. And, uh, and, but, uh, and actually, it's kind of interesting because the, Facebook, the timeline in Facebook's motto line is tell your life story with a new kind of profile. And it sounds pretty cool and interesting. However, there are some people that are a little bit worried about this because if you choose to go to timeline and you have some old junk 
in Facebook that maybe you're embarrassed about or you don't want people to see or it's down deep in there from a few years ago and you don't want people to see, all of a sudden everything that you've done in the past is going to be made permanent on Facebook. And so there are a lot of people worried, you know, people that may have had old boyfriends or girlfriends in the past and they got pictures of them everywhere and now they're not boyfriends and girlfriends. And so, you know, maybe there were periods of time where people were uh, angry and they were writing on Facebook and everything you've posted, everything that you've liked or disliked is going to be posted permanently on this thing called timeline. I have you all worried, don't I? No, I'm just kidding. Um, But this whole concept is, is that all of a sudden, everything that you've ever done in your history on Facebook will be permanent. Well, the developers of Facebook came up with a fantastic solution to this. Once you choose Timeline, you have seven days to clean up all the junk in your Facebook life. Okay, the clock all of a sudden is ticking to clean up all of the junk you have in Facebook. And once that clock is down to the seventh day, guess what? It's permanent. And it's on there forever stamped in the history of the Internet time. So anyway, so I got thinking about this recently. Isn't it great that God doesn't deal with us on that kind of timeline? I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm glad I've got more than seven days. I'm glad there's not a short leash or a long leash on the timeline to clean up my past, aren't you? You see, God is the author of eternity. Jesus, the promised one, is the father of eternity. So our past Our past mistakes and our future failures have absolutely no consequence on his timeline. Paul reminds the church of Corinth in this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, when he says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. The old is what? Gone and the new has come. And I know you say, Todd, you use that verse a lot. You know what? I think it's one of the most pivotal verses in Scripture is that we forget about the fact that God views us. I want you to catch this. God views us not with a seven-day history, not with a one-month history, not with years of history. He views our past mistakes and our future failures as gone. Isn't that good news? That's the story of Christmas. That's the story of God sending a baby to save humanity. And those of you who are in this room today who have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you are in Christ, like Paul says at the church at Corinth, your past is already permanently gone. There's no seven-day waiting period. There's no timeline on that. Your past is gone. The message itself is interesting, but it's even more interesting who Paul wrote this to. The church in Corinth, I mean, if they had Facebook, it would have been bad. These folks were terrible, and they accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. The church there in Corinth, they accepted Christ as their Savior, and because they knew that they were going to heaven, boy, they lived like they wanted to live, and it's called cheap grace, and they they just lived like they wanted to because they knew where they were going. Well, Paul chastises them for that, and he says, you ought to live a, a righteous, upright life, and that ought to be something that you do out of your walk with God, but he reminds them that the past is the past. And I have a feeling, and I want you to hear this, I have a feeling the reason that he reminded them of that is the same reason that we need to be reminded of that today is that because sometimes we live our Christian lives, we live our journeys with God down here in the mire of sin, 
because we can't let go of the guilt and the shame that haunts us from the past. And because Jesus is the author of eternity, we can know that we can know that we can know that we are not defined by our past mistakes and future failures, that God views that in the past and we ought to do the same thing. This is the realm that Jesus deals in. This is the realm that the promise came to to deal in. You see, God didn't send Jesus to come and deal in this realm here on earth on our timeline. He deals in the realm of eternity. He deals in the realm of eternity. And so what he says goes, and the fact is, is that the past is the past to God. But we sometimes wallow in the past, don't we? And we need to get out of that, and we need to live like he wants us to live. The second point this morning is because Jesus is the everlasting father, he defined grace by being born to die for us. He defined grace by being born to die for us. I mentioned to you a few minutes ago that my pop, William W. Boyd, is 90 years old today, and in 1921 he was born on this day. Well, what if I told you that my grandfather, William W. Boyd, was born to die? You're like, no, he wasn't. He wasn't born to die. That's not why he was born. My grandfather was born to be adopted, to become a Christ follower, to marry Kay Heisey, Catherine Heisey, who became Catherine Heisey Boyd, to raise two children, to have five grandchildren, to have a successful banking business, to be a godly man in his community, to help about a dozen, half dozen or so churches get started up, including this one. He wasn't born to die. And neither were you, and neither was I. We weren't born to die. We were born to live life with purpose to its fullest. We talked about that a few weeks ago. But you know what? There was one who was born for the specific purpose to suffer and to die. Isaiah, in another prophecy in Isaiah 53, fast-forwarding to Isaiah 53, says this about who Jesus would be. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering like one from whom men would hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. That means sins. He was was, uh, pierced for our transgressions. He was cursed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. But he, uh, the punishment that was brought, up, uh, brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, all like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And verse 10 says this, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. You see, the nation of Israel was looking for a king, weren't they? They were looking for royalty. Does that sound like royalty to you? No, not at all. Now, fast forward five to 600 years later, and here's what the disciple Luke says, that Jesus says to his followers when he came back to earth after he died and rose again from the dead. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about. In the law of Moses and the prophets, and specifically he was talking about Isaiah 53 here, and the Psalms, 
And then he, Jesus, opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Do you realize that in the birth of the promised one, in the birth of the Messiah, grace was defined for us because he was born to die. He was born to die. And we may not like to think about that when we picture that beautiful little baby, but he was born specifically to die. And in doing so, he defined grace. Grace defined as unmerited favor. And that's exactly what God has given us. Unmerited favor. And the favor that we have is the hope of heaven because he was the father of what? Eternity. Because he dealt in the realm of eternity. And that leads us to our last point this morning. Because Jesus is the everlasting father, we should choose to extend grace to everyone in our lives. And you're like, Todd, it's the Christmas season. Do I really have to? People are people, and during the Christmas season, it is so tough to extend grace and forgiveness and love, isn't it? It's just the way that things go. But you know what Paul says to Timothy? He says this, Then you then, my son, in 2 Timothy 2.1, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And we should do just the same. We should be strong in the spirit of grace, just like, just like God through Jesus was strong in the grace that he extended to us. The holidays bring out the worst in all of us. And some of you are going to face the worst of some of your closest friends and family over the coming days. And this is an opportunity for us as Christ followers to extend grace to those who we surround ourselves with. When you have those moments when Dad's at the dinner table and he says the wrong thing and grandma's complaining because the turkey's too dry and grandpa's complaining because the kids are rebellious and you're not raising them the right way and because the kids complain because Santa didn't get it this year, just remember the grace that was extended to you is the same kind of grace that we ought to extend to others. Take a look at what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another. What's the next word? Forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. His grace was good enough for us to receive, wasn't it? So it should be good enough for us to extend to others, shouldn't it? What would Christmas be like this year if you extended grace to those that you came in contact with? Maybe it's not a close family member. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a friend that owes you something. Maybe it's someone that really needs to extend forgiveness to you. Why not rise above that and be kind and compassionate to them? What would Christmas look like if you really extended the grace that Jesus gave us, forgiving each other just as Christ forgave us of our sins? What would it look like if in 2012 you made the decision, you know what, I'm going to live in the spirit of grace just like Jesus did, the everlasting Father, the Father of of eternity extended to us. Yesterday, something happened to me that's never happened to me ever before in my life. I have, an, I have a new accomplishment in all my life, one that I'll never forget, one that I thought would happen a lot longer ago than it did. But yesterday, I got in my truck, turned on my car, drove about uh, three miles outside of where we live, and I ran out of gas. And I found out something very quickly when you run out of gas in a small community, everybody knows you and they wave and they honk and they drive on by. 
I'm like, thanks for the help. All right, very good, very good. I ran out of gas. And so I did what every good husband does. I did what every good father does. For a moment, I considered not calling my wife. I went through the list of people that I could call instead of her, and I decided against it, and I called Cynthia, and I just said, honey, ran out of gas. Can you come and bring the gas can and come and uh, help me out, and we'll go get gas and fill up the truck, and I can be on my way. Now, after 16 years of being married, I didn't know what to expect. I promise you, I did not know what to expect. But I didn't expect outrageous laughter. (laughs) Followed by, wait for it, followed by, I'm glad you did it first. (laughs) And she had some fun with that, and it put me in a good mood. But it was... uh, It was embarrassing, and it could have been very frustrating, and uh, I called them back after they were in the van on their way to meet me about five minutes, uh, uh, you know, uh, down the road, and and I called, and uh, Sydney answered the phone, and this is what I got, and I learned something from my wife's response and from Cynthia's response. I learned something about God yesterday. This is what Sydney said. Now, uh, you got to understand, every time I get in my truck and that little light's on, you know what I hear from my sweet little seven-year-old? Daddy, the light's on. Daddy, the light's on. Daddy, the light's on. This is what I heard yesterday when she answered the phone on her way to, on their way to bring gas to my truck. Daddy, I think somebody needs to hear a Christmas carol. <laughs> you know, she's been watching Elf a little too much. Anyway, <laughs> it's that kind of grace. It's that kind of mercy. It's that kind of love. It's that kind of understanding that God gave us and that we should extend to others. What if we did it differently this Christmas season? You know, God's a God of justice. He's a God of grace. And I'm sure that a lot of you have heard a lot about God's justice in your past. But I would imagine that not too many of you, maybe from different church backgrounds, have heard a lot about God's grace. Well, his grace is absolutely 100% sufficient for eternity because he's the father of eternity. And if you're here today, maybe you're a Christ follower, maybe you've been a Christ follower for a long time, and you've got some of that guilt and that shame that I talked about, maybe it's this Christmas that you give that to God and finally get rid of that and live in the spirit of the grace that he intended for you to live in. Maybe it's finally time for you to really, truly accept that love and forgiveness for something that you've done even since you've become a Christ follower, And accept that love and forgiveness and grace and confess your sins and move on in your life with him. And maybe you're in here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ, the father of eternity, as your savior. Well, maybe it's Christmas 2011 that's going to be your time to do that. Maybe you can't imagine ever doing anything that's good enough to have the hope of heaven. I can't either. You know why? Because it's not possible without the father of eternity. And so if you're in here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that today. Please don't wait another day. The Father of eternity ushered in a new age of grace and of love and forgiveness. And you can have that today if you'll accept him as your Savior. Jesus says that all you have to do is confess of your sins, believe in your heart, and confess with your mouth that he is the Savior and that he rose from the dead. And if you do that today, you'll have eternity also with him because he is the everlasting father. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you for the fact that you came as a baby 
God, I thank you that you are the wonderful counselor, that you're the mighty God. And today I thank you that you're the everlasting Father. God, I thank you that you are the beginning of the new covenant. That you're the origin of this new day. And God, I thank you for those who are in here who have accepted you as their Savior. And God, they're walking in the light of that. But God, I pray for those who are just absolutely pulled down by the weight of shame and of guilt. In the name of Jesus, God, I pray that you would release them from that. I pray that this Christmas season they can extend grace and forgiveness and love because they finally are living in the freedom of the grace and forgiveness and love that you extended to them. God, I pray for those Christ followers in here who have some issue between a family member or a friend, a loved one. God, I pray that you would help extend grace into that situation, into that relationship. But God, I pray also for those who may be in here today and they've never asked you to be their Savior. They've never in their own lives made you the Father of eternity. And God, I pray today that it is, I pray that today will be their day of salvation. If you're in here today and you've never asked Jesus to be your Savior, if you've never really considered eternity at all, my prayer today is, is that you would make that decision, that you would say yes to Jesus that you would confess of your sins and your failures and that you would accept him as your savior and that you would live your life for him. I want to invite you to do that if you've never done that before. And just in the quietness of this room, in this place, if you want to accept Jesus Christ as your savior, today on December 18th, 2011, I'm going to invite you to pray a prayer just silently in your heart along with me. It goes like this. God, thank you for making me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you that you, Jesus, were the father of eternity. And today, I confess of my sins and I accept you, Jesus, as my savior. Help me to turn from my old way and to live for you. Just in the quietness of this room with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you prayed that prayer, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand just very quietly. I'm not going to embarrass you, I promise. Amen. Anyone else? Any others this morning? Any others? Amen. Just in the quietness of this place, any others this morning who accepted Jesus as their Savior? Father God, I thank you for our church. God, I thank you for Hilton Head Island Community Church. I thank you for all the believers who are here who are following you. And God, I thank you for these new believers here today who said, hey, today, December 18th, 2011, is my day of salvation. And God, I pray for strength. I pray your Holy Spirit would guide and direct them in their newfound faith with you. God, I pray that you would lead us, your church, to be people who walk in the spirit of the grace that you, the Father of eternity, extended to us. And I pray that in the strong name of Jesus.